Hi, Krista. How are Hi. you? Oh, I finally got you, you in the like studio. <laughs> sound like you're right next door. I, I know. Was isn't it great? We're going to be face to face. No, you know, I like this. I like. I there's. You can get an, uh, a level of intimacy and total focus on the spoken word with this kind of technology. I think than you sometimes can sitting in the you know, room with someone. Terry Gross has told me that she prefers mm-hmm. the phone yeah. to the face-to-face. What I think she, is, you know, yeah, there are some people I needed to be in the room with, um, but mm-hmm. I also think because you and I have, you know, we have yeah. connected in person, sure. um, that also yeah. helps. But okay. It does help. When you can visualize somebody yeah. and have a personal conversation and yeah. you know, have had a glass of wine with them. Like yeah, that's right. Late at night. <laughs> How are you doing? <laughs> Doing great, actually. Great. Just got my kids great. back to school, and me you know, too. I know me too. structure begins again. <laughs> well, I'm I really took, excited. Took, Sorry, go on. I took uh, Luke's birthday. My nine-year-old is always Labor Day weekend. Oh, we so have we a nine-year-old uh, son too. Do you? Yeah, so I, yeah. I, I, we took his whole team, the little Astros team that, that I coach, mm-hmm. and all his friends to a Ironbirds minor league Cal Ripken stadium baseball game. Ripken owns this minor league Orioles team. <laughs> and he has the Ripken stadium, and it's so cool. 26 fourth graders. Yeah, Joy, Joy and I took <laughs> to the stadium. It was wild. Uh-huh. It was wild. Yeah. And he caught a ball in the stands on his birthday. Oh, that's and great. And he was so excited. He's sitting there saying, Dad, I'm so excited. I'm tingling. <laughs> I'm tingling. Oh, that's great. So I, we're, I we're all back age. at school. Yeah. Me too. Me too. Yours uh, is nine. Well, I have a, yeah, I have a 13 year old daughter, which is another story entirely. And then I have oh, a yeah. nine year old son, and I'm really enjoying him at nine. I'm not looking forward to the 13 year old stage because I remember what I was like at 13, <laughs> I and I wouldn't want to have had me. Yeah. Well, you, you get it back. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm just, I'm really excited that we're finally doing this. You know, I've yeah, told you too. for years, I knew I had to interview at some point, and this just feels like the right moment to me. Yeah, that's great. So, that's great. Um, I, I listened to you interview Shane. Oh, by the way, yes. Uh, last night. Oh, you did, you did a great job. Wasn't I listened that just great? last night. Yeah. yeah, you did a great job. Yeah, you know that really that program really uh, surprised people because they just don't know that a person. A lot of people, you know, there's a there's a mm-hmm. world of people who know about Shane Claiborne, but there's a whole world of public radio listeners who have no idea. And um, yeah, I thought that was great. He quoted you too, didn't he? Oh, no, I meant probably. But, yeah, he did. but 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 you know, um, I was at World Vision for their triennial council in Singapore just last week. Mm-hmm. It's a hundred countries, and and you know, to be in a place where global South Christians, it's the same thing with Shane, hear an American voice, which you know, I'm well, things I'm saying. Brian McLaren says them, Tony Shane. Right. We're not the only Americans who feel this way. Yeah. But they kept saying, we've never heard an American yeah. talk like this. And it's so refreshing. It's like refreshing, be- yeah. And oh. it, it gives people hope because they've, yeah. they've just he, come he to despair. Yeah. yeah, He doesn't come across as, I'm better than you. No. You know, he really has learned to not. Uh, and, you know, we did the same. When I visited his place, his place, his house, it just, I had to keep biting my tongue saying, we used to do this. Yeah, right. <laughs> you know, the, our, it, it looked like our old houses. It smelled like our old houses. It was disheveled like our old. Yeah. Anarchy is big pride in your disorganization, <laughs> you know. Uh-huh. But but for a while, you know, you, you have this badge of 
simpli- badge of righteousness yeah. about your lifestyle. And he really has gotten through that, I think. Yeah. There's and I a think humility. What we talked about at the end of the interview about also just his generation has this ability to connect the dots and this global perspective yeah. that is available yeah. to them that I think yeah. does create humility and also a sense of possibility. Yeah. Yeah, it's okay. a globalized generation. Yeah. So, all right, we should talk about real okay. stuff. Um, all <laughs> okay. right. Are we, Mitch, are we okay with levels and all that? Okay, let's just go. Okay. And I want to start by um, really getting to know, you know, where you came from. Um, mm-hmm. I've read you grew up in a middle-class family in suburban Detroit. I mean, what was the spiritual background of your um, of your upbringing that, that, where you <laughs> kind of trace your roots to what you do now? Well, I'm from the middle of middle America, Mm -hmm. and my mom and dad started the church that was the place I grew up, Little Plymouth Brethren Assembly, very evangelical place, and it was our whole life. We had no clergy, so lay leadership was was what we had. My dad was an engineer, Mm -hmm. but he was kind of the chief elder, and so I kind of was a pastor's kid, but he was kind of a real sort of uh, everyday work person. He got up every day at 5 in the morning uh, to study his Bible for two hours and then got mm-hmm. got us up for work and school. Uh, and it was that level of commitment and passion. And, and they both were like that. They were the leaders of the church, though my mom was a woman, so she couldn't publicly be the leader, but they were the leaders of the church, you know. Was it so, uh, Plymouth Brethren, I think, yeah. can be many things. Were they um, theologically conservative? Did they have a social oh, justice yes. mindset? No, it was very evangelical in the usual ways mm-hmm. back then. And I remember, I remember I was six years old, and my parents were a little nervous because, well, I wasn't saved yet. And I was getting right. up in years. I was six, you know. So there's a fiery evangelist that was billed to be coming in a couple of weeks. And and so I was kind of dreading the day because I heard he was pretty scary. And all the unsaved kids had to sit in the first row. Uh, you know, <laughs> we never want to sit in the first row because you think the closer you are to a sermon, the more impact it will have on your life. Right. You know? <laughs> but he preached and he pointed his finger, it seemed, right at me. And he says, if Jesus came back tonight... Your mommy and daddy would be taken to heaven, and you would be left oh, all by yourself. Mm-hmm. Well, it got my attention, <laughs> and I realized at six I would have had a five-year-old sister to support, and so <laughs> I asked my mother how to fix this thing, and to her everlasting credit, she told me about the love of God, hmm. not the wrath of God, and God wanted me to be his child. And so I signed up. It wasn't deep, but it was <laughs> as real as it gets, you know, yeah. for a six-year-old. And our church, of course, didn't believe in infant baptism, but adult baptism. So I got baptized at eight. Right. <laughs> you know? yeah. and, but my second conversion was really the most important because I'm 14 now. I'm paying attention in my home city of Detroit. I'm reading the papers. I'm listening to the news. And I'm asking questions. How come we live the way we do in white Detroit? And life is so different in black Detroit, just a few miles or blocks away. Mm-hmm. You're too young to ask these questions, I was told. When you get older, you'll understand. So where, when are we, what decade are we talking here? This is like, this is like uh, early 1960s. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so I didn't get answers, so I went in the city to find answers, and I met the black church. <laughs> hmm. And they loved the same Jesus and read the same Bible and sang out of the same hymn book, but made it sound so much better than we did. Did you, you know? just walk into a black church? Yeah, I, I just started reading books and huh. uh, 
uh, I read the autobiography of Malcolm X. And, uh, oh, so I the civil rights movement's bubbling along was, in the culture oh, at yeah. large. Okay. And I'm hearing about this guy in the South, this minister named King. Mm-hmm. You know, what was he up to? You know, how come we never had any black preachers in our church? Never been to a black church? And and so I came back with questions and new questions and new friends <laughs> and, and, and some answers. And an elder one night in a very pivotal moment for me said, Jim, you have to understand Christianity has nothing to do with racism. That's political. And our faith is personal. Hmm. And Chris said, I think that's the night that I left <laughs> in my head and my heart. And I was gone in a couple of years altogether and got got joined the civil rights struggle and the anti-war movement. Because... I didn't have words to mm-hmm. go around it then, but I do now. And the words are that God is personal, but never private. Okay. And I had a privatized notion of faith that never touched the world. So you left the church because you felt that the yeah. church was enmeshed with that and couldn't get couldn't make the connections you were making. Uh, to be honest, I felt kind of kicked out because mm-hmm. I was raising these questions and they mm-hmm. they really didn't, didn't want them in the church. Mm-hmm. You know, our favorite verse in those days, I, I don't know what, you know, if you don't know this background like like I do, but it was for God so loved the world, John three sixteen, that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Problem is we only focused on the last two stanzas about uh, everlasting life, and mm-hmm. not for God so loved the world, yeah. and the world who I cared about is was my world. I was a teenage kid. I wanted to change the world, and they didn't care about change the world. They just didn't care about the world. Right? Yeah. Listen, I grew up Southern Baptist with a preacher ah, grandfather. Okay. So I, we got I, some stories. To I tell. heard that verse. <laughs> um, so you went to college. When you went to college, Michigan State University, you weren't a religious person. No. I was unsuccessfully evangelized by every student group on campus. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I, I was, I was, I was, a, you know, I was a. We could put ten thousand people in the street in two hours' time in those days. Mm-hmm. We deployed students uh, all over the state of Michigan like an army. Uh, we were very well organized, and I wasn't a Christian. I was, you know, I was pretty angry. I felt betrayed by the church, uh, though I never could quite get shed of Jesus, uh, to mm. be honest. He was always kind of lingering and hanging around in my head and my heart. But mm. no, I wasn't actively a Christian at all. Pretty angry, pretty oppositional to churches in those days. So so what pulled you back? Because I don't, sen- I sense that yeah. a lot of your activism was a- around issues that you still care about today. So what pulled, mm-hmm. drew you back to that, to, to faith, to yeah. organized religion even? I was, in those days, reading Ho Chi Minh, Che Guevara, <laughs> Karl Marx, like everybody was, you know. And I just didn't think that what I was reading and what I was finding sort of on the left was an adequate foundation or basis for for life. And even for a life that I wanted to be an activist, I wanted to... to commit myself to social justice. It wasn't, it wasn't deep enough. It wasn't strong enough. So I went back to the New Testament on my own, kind of one last time, uh, to give this Jesus uh, one last look. It was either Jesus or Marx for me. It was a choice at that point. And I began to read um, in the book of Matthew, uh, just on my own. Uh, we just had the student strike in 1970. Hmm. 
you know, I'd been tear gassed more times than I can remember and <laughs> beat up by the police. And uh, Michigan, Central Michigan, Michigan State, I went to school, was a real foundation, real kind of a place where, where the right, the John Birch Society was headquartered 20 minutes away. Hmm. And I got... I was getting death threats at night in my dorm room, and it was it was a very intense time. So I kind of grown up in the movement, but I wasn't satisfied with with the foundation we had. So, and I read the Sermon on the Mount, <laughs> and amazingly, I had never heard a sermon in my home church on the Sermon on the Mount, <laughs> which was the primary catechetical instruction for the early Christians. Right. Matthew five, six, and seven. This whole new way of living, this new order of things, this the Magna Carta of the kingdom of God, the, the constitution of the kingdom. This is what this new way of life was about. And I read it, and I was just really, uh, uh, you know, fascinated. I was blown away by how radical it was. It was to change everything, personal, spiritual, political, economic. Take, um, just tell me just a line or two that you know, that struck you then as central, that struck you still as just because somebody's listening who doesn't know what the sermon, what's in the Sermon on the Mount. Well, the I mean, there's Beatitudes, a lot in there, I know, yeah. But the, you know, blessed are the poor, blessed yeah. are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for justice, blessed are the peacemakers. Um, you know, I was told <laughs> in my home church that that was for a different dispensation, they said, for the future, when we all get to heaven. Ah. Now I'm 14. I said, I think we need that now. Right. <laughs> Why would we need that in heaven, you know? So it never made sense, this kind of this privatized face. So I read this, these values, these radical values about compassion and justice and, and mercy and love and, and peacemaking. And I thought, this is more transforming or more radical, if you will, than anything in Marx or Ho Chi Minh or Che mm. Guevara. But then I got to my conversion text was later in the book of Matthew, Matthew 25. And Jesus says, of course, famously, I was yeah. hungry, I was thirsty, I was naked, I was sick, I was a stranger, I was in prison, you never came to me. And, and, and all the people said kind of, Lord, when did we see you hungry and thirsty and naked and stranger and sick in prison? We didn't know it was you. Had we done it as you, we would have formed a social action committee or something, you know. <laughs> as you've done it to the least of these, he says, you've done it to me. Here's the Son of God sitting in judgment saying, how you treat those who are left out and left behind is the way I'm going to regard you treating me. Hmm. I thought, wow, Che Guevara never got this deep. And I signed up. I just said, that's it. I'm signing up. Not to be a Christian, because the church was still a problem, but to be a follower of Jesus. Okay. <laughs> and I signed up. And, uh, you know, I kind of broke through the that kind of left uh, anti-religious thing that I'd been part of. Yeah. I said, this Jesus is, this is, you know, I never heard about this Jesus in, in my church. And I went to seminary. You went to seminary and in yeah. 1971 you founded Sojourners. And I was mm-hmm. intrigued to find out that the original name of the publication was not yeah. Sojourners, but the Post-American. Now, yeah. what, what did that name mean to you in 1971? Well, you know, I had a friend who once said, I went, I went, I got called to seminary and God hadn't spoken to me since. Uh, <laughs> my, my, my experience was, was, was very different. I, we, I packed my, all my belongings in a little red Ford Falcon and drove to this Trinity Evangelical Divinity School in Deerfield, Illinois. Right. 
where it was still 1955. <laughs> there, you know, there had never been any anti-war organizing, never leafleting, nothing. I mean, this was like, as far as they knew, Eisenhower was still the president. <laughs> uh, and so a bunch of us, uh, I remember the kid next door to me, uh, I was there for orientation, and I heard, I heard Dylan on a guitar, so I went next door. And the kid says, he was a senior, about to leave. And I, I said, you Dylan? He says, you know Dylan? I said, yeah. <laughs> and he says, he says, no one else here knows Dylan. I'm the only one against the war. And we talked all night long, me and this kid. By the morning, he said, I was going to leave seminary today. Not anymore. This is going to be a really interesting year. What do we do? And I said, okay, well, we got to get a group together. So you keep your antenna out, and I will too. And in two nights, we meet back with a group, and we start organizing. You found the other closet so, revolutionaries. Yeah, around. well, they were from, you know, inner varsity and campus crusade and yeah. student movements and some bit on drugs. And, I mean, I just think it was providential. We came together, and our text was this wonderful text in Romans 12, don't be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Mm -hmm. And in the one version is, don't let the world squeeze you into its mold. And we were dealing with a totally Americanized notion of religion. So we said, let's call our publication the Post-American, <laughs> beyond we're Christians first and mm -hmm. whatever else second or third or fourth. Mm -hmm. Very radical idea. And the first cover, Chris, you should see it. Here's a sculpt of Jesus wrapped in an American flag. Right? <laughs> and, the, and the line on the cover of our publication was, and they crucified him. Hmm. Hmm. Way to start, you know, kind of building bridges right. to the evangelicals, you know. <laughs> so it was like the first, it was a tabloid newspaper published by the same or printed by the same people in Chicago who did the Black Panther paper, right. you know. And on the inside, I, I counted, there were like 12 clenched fists on, on that first issue of the magazine. It was against the war, you know, and it was about poverty and justice. But it was also about how Jesus was was the foundation and the answer. And it was really, it was written, Krista, more to students like we had been. It was written to the activist, radical students who weren't Christians, not to the churches, mm. we thought. And at first, uh, you know, I was there in the middle of a night when they came off the press and it was like a new baby being born. And yeah. I was just, you know, I had this, this little publication in my hands and I took it to a gas station to get gas and this kid sitting on the sidewalk stoned out of his mind. You know, and I said, here, look at this. Our first reader, right? He looked at it, he says, looks pretty cool, man. <laughs> so I took it home, and a car went west, a car went east, dropping off. We had no mailing list, of course, yeah. dropping off these, these little tabloid newspaper things. But it really got a response from Christians around the country. It was like putting a flag up a flagpole. And those on the ground couldn't see each other, but they could see that little flag up the flagpole, ran to the bottom of the pole, and that was the beginning of our constituency. Hmm. Long time ago. Yeah. Seminary. We were just seminarians. And, you know, I, I think it's important and, and maybe mm, is lost. You know, many people, you, you are now, Sojourners is now a, a, a big influential organization and, uh, you know, is even a, a, a name, a brand that's seen on... Uh, CNN during a presidential debate, right? And I, I wonder if many people know that Sojourners was not just a publication, not just a, 
you know, an organization, but a, a community, mm-hmm. right? A living community. Yeah. You, you, you moved. Did that begin when you moved to Washington? In uh, when was that? No, it began nineteen seventy-five. You're exactly right. We said we got to do this. Right. We got to live this way. We got to. So we we got together and first we were in seminary and then we in seminary we got a house off campus and we began to organize and mobilize and we had we had these worship celebrations every week and they drew all the alienated kids in the community all the kids that were doing drugs and so you're kind of a house church then yeah oh yeah Uh yeah and Uh and we did rock and roll and we you know preached it was really kind of and drew just hundreds and hundreds of people and and then we began to organize in chicago and and then then they've got written up in chicago papers and the seminary lost a lot of money (laughs) because of these students who were on campus and i was i was told i'd cost the seminary a million dollars and lost contributions at one point Uh, when they tried to kick me out there's impact for you yeah yeah. (laughs) and and we 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 went to the inner city and we started the community much the way my young friend Shane Claiborne yes. did in that you talked to Shane in Chicago, I mean in Philly, the yeah. simple way, we went to the very toughest, poorest neighborhoods uptown in Chicago, and began to live among the poor and work among the poor, and then came to Washington and did the same in in what was really the Washington war zones. I mean, this was we moved in here and there was gunfire every night and cabs wouldn't bring people to our neighborhood and. Uh, and we tried, you know, in our own fledgling, very human, very flawed way to live what we said we believed in about, about Jesus taking up residence among uh, the, the poorest people and the kingdom, a new order, coming to life uh, in places like that. So it was a publication, it was a community, and it was a movement, right? From the start, we're traveling around the country, and, you know, and, and it is funny, now we're, you know, CNN and, or, or whatever the experience for years, Krista, was speaking in a, in a stadium without a microphone. And the way you do that is you talk to one section at a time and you keep moving around the stadium. Mm. I did that for years. Mm. And then you build up a constituency, very strong, very loyal. Well, now we have the microphone. Right. But we've been in the stadium for years speaking without a microphone. But now things have broken through in ways that we never really uh, yeah. Expected. And um, you still live in that Columbia Heights neighborhood, yeah. right? With your, mm-hmm. And now you're raising your family there. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, a four-year-old son and a nine-year-old son. Yeah. Uh, it's a struggle. Now, the neighborhood, you know, we lived in and uh, fought for just there for years. Uh, it's gentrifying now. Mm-hmm. Uh, D.C. is really gentrifying. So it's a battle now, and, and we're trying to figure out how to be be there in some new ways, some different ways. There's a lot of poor people still. It's very racially mixed, very economically mixed. But it's we're we're battling. The new subway came in and kind of transformed. The last neighbor to get the subway, of course, was the poorest neighborhood. They went way to the suburbs and finally put up a subway in our neighborhood, and that's when it really uh, gentrification took off. Mm-hmm. So we're battling a new situation now. But you know, that's uh, it's just a new phase in our life. Okay. Was the phone ringing there where you are? I, I turned it off. Oh, that was you. No, okay, I, okay. No, we're fine. I think we're okay. okay. All right. Um, all right. So, so this is so. As you said, you've been around doing this for a long time, building a constituency uh, in the stadium without a microphone. And you've been, you've been an evangelical. You've been an evangelical mm-hmm. leader in in some circles. In 
this century, you know, after the 2000 election, after the 2004 election, many Americans, many of my fellow journalists kind of woke up to evangelical Christianity um, mm-hmm. as though it was almost a new phenomenon or certainly knew that it was so many, so many Americans with so much potential power and actual power. But I wonder if you would tell me, um, you know, your story of um, who evangelicals have been and, you know, kind of the diversity of the evangelical movement that you've represented for a long time in this same period of, uh, you know, 30, 40 years that we're talking about before um, evangelical Christianity was uh, a political force in the way it is now. Well, I'm a 19th century evangelical born in the wrong century. (laughs) Because back then, uh, Charles Finney, uh, Lucy Stone, the Grimke sisters, Jonathan Blanchard, these preachers, revivalists, were also abolitionists. They led the anti-slavery campaign. They fought for women's suffrage. They fought for economic justice. Uh, In fact, Charles Finney, who was the, uh, the evangelist, the Billy Graham of his day, really pioneered the altar call and the reason he did was he wanted to sign his converts up for the anti-slavery campaign. Right, that so is an faith incredible got directed fact. right to justice. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right, because mm-hmm. in the in the evangelical churches I grew up in, um, in the Southern Baptist churches I grew up in, I think in 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 the entire mainstream evangelical life in this country, an altar call had personal significance, but that mm-hmm. that social, uh, political justice context was completely lost. Well, you know, when I said that God is personal but never private, uh, sometimes today I say, you know, this God wants relationship. This God knows everything about every one of us in this church, in this stadium, in this room, but wants a relationship with us anyway. Hmm. But why? To sign us up for God's purposes in the world. That's why. Hmm. For the sake of the world. And so it's got to be personal. Nobody wants a just a set of dogmas or doctrinal principles or a set of social principles. It's a personal relationship. I, that's why So it's, I'm it's, still a, it's a synergy of those two things. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. And to, I'm, the word evangelical, people often ask me, what does it mean? Well, you know, the biblical word is evangel, which means the good news. And the text is drawn from is Luke 4, Jesus in his opening riff, his his first gig, his mission statement, his Nazareth manifesto, where he stood up in the temple and he quoted Isaiah, the spirit your, of your the term. Lord. <laughs> yeah, it's Nazareth manifesto. Yeah. This is what I'm about. This is my mission statement. Pay attention here. Okay. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to preach good news. The evangel, that's the word right there. Good news, evangel, to the poor. Right there. That's mm. the text. Mm. Which means if the gospel of Jesus Christ isn't good news to poor people, Whatever else it does, it might cure your addictions or straighten your family life out. This is good. If it isn't good news to poor people, it isn't the gospel of Jesus Christ, very simply. And I read that text. I thought, wow, that's that's his mission statement. Is it ours? That's the so I go to Christian colleges now, these very conservative schools. I say, hey, Wheaton College, I hear you're a premier uh, conservative evangelical school. Well, I want to know if you're really evangelicals. Or just a bunch of conservatives. Okay. <laughs> and then I do Luke 4. And what's happening is they're all at the end standing up as if to say, yes, I want to be that kind of evangelical now. That's what's changing us so dramatically. So so I want to hear <clears throat> Jim Wallace's explanation, narrative, of, uh-huh. of how the evangelical movement, um, well, 
how you always you, how you've had a place in it yourself these 30 40 years um and you know what changed how how when evangelical christianity burst onto the political scene in the early mm-hmm. 21st century um mm-hmm. and i think this is changing too but when that happened just 7 years ago um poverty was not one of the watchwords so no. so t- tell me you know how would you there've been lots of analyses of where evangelicals came from what it means and how they changed after the 60s to now but i want to hear you tell that story well, your question is the one I've been working on for the past year, and it's the whole focus of this new book, which is going to be called The Great Awakening, mm-hmm. uh, The Reviving of Faith and Politics in the Post-Religious Right Era, because that's what we're in now, the post-religious right era. What happened was, if you look back, and I've been just enthralled by this revival history, you know, these Great Awakenings, and the first one, the first Great Awakening, led probably to spark the war, you know, independence and this new nation, this new sense of, of being a new people. The second one was, uh, was Finney and the others about ab- abolition of slavery and women's suffrage. The third was William James Bryan and the whole and end of the 19th century progressive movement led to the New Deal and the social gospel. Mm-hmm. I think the fourth one was the black churches and how they were the foundation for the civil rights movement. Then we had this period where literally uh, some political operatives on the right, uh, overtly political operatives, had some meetings in this town, Washington, D.C., with some of the television preachers, Falwell and Robertson. And they struck up a deal, made a deal. Give us your names and we'll aim our computers, Richard Vigory said. At your consent, we'll create a block. Is that really a quote? Political, that's really what happened. A block of support for the Republican Party. It was the politicizing of the gospel for winning elections for the Republican Party. It was the utter uh, politicizing of the gospel. So this was, I think, more a political movement than a religious one. But they they grabbed issues that were important to Christians, like the sanctity of life or the health of marriage, but they turned it into a narrow agenda about abortion and gay marriage. What's interesting, and that was very successful for a period of time, and in 2004, you remember the exit polls about the value voters, and they were concerned about abortion gay marriage. They all voted Republican, 80%. But what people didn't understand was underneath all that, there was real... Uh, uneasiness and real dissension. There was always a more progressive evangelical spirit and move. It wasn't just Jim Wallace and Tony Campolo and Ron Sider. It was a growing right. kind of phenomenon. But then a new generation like Shane Claiborne and a bunch of them rose up to say, wait a minute, this new generation cares much more about the 30,000 children who died today globally because of totally unnecessary poverty and preventable disease cares more about those 3,000 kids than they do about gay marriage amendments in Ohio. They really do. And Um, that's the change. It's a mm -hmm. big change, sea change for the church, a wider agenda, as you know so well. The environment is now creation care, Uh, HIV, AIDS, uh, pandemic diseases. These are God's concerns. Genocide in Darfur, Mm -hmm. uh, the war in Iraq. The agenda is wider and deeper And that's even the the agenda of the National Association of Evangelicals. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And Wheaton College. And I was just with World Vision last week in Singapore, the biggest relief and development organization in the world. And now advocacy is their third pillar along with relief and development. And they're talking about global justice. Mm Mm-hmm. 
But here's what I still want to try to understand is how for those decades did um, did poverty fall out of the imagination? You know, why why was it easy to hijack um, if, if, you know, the, the way you've described it as political operatives um, turning these things into political issues? If that's what happened, you know, why was that so successful? And And I guess, you know, behind that question is what failed? Where did... Um, where did that voice of um, Christianity, evangelical Christianity, that that saw poverty as as a as an essential Christian issue, you know, where did that go? There was a meeting in Chicago in the uh, 1970s where a number of us, as very young evangelical leaders, Ron Sider, myself, Tony Campolo, Ron Sider, we should say, is Evangelicals for Social Action is, is uh-huh. his organization, and, and Tony Rich Campolo Christians in the Age a, of Hunger. Okay, and Tony Campolo yeah. is a longtime mm-hmm. uh, evangelical social activist. Mm-hmm. Fair, dear, yeah. dear okay. friends of mine mm-hmm. from from a long time ago. Mm-hmm. We met with the kind of the older establishment, the evangelical elders. Which, which was uh, who made, back in the 1970s? Which is like curious. Wheaton College, okay. Christianity Today, Carl Henry, all these people okay. who they weren't. They were just right. They were the conservative evangelical establishment. Mm-hmm. And we put together something called an, a Declaration of Evangelical Social Concern. And it was an older, younger—Billy Graham was part of the older generation. Okay. Older, younger. And, and we all signed that together. 1974, I thought this was going to be uh, the beginning of a new evangelical social conscience. Because uh, we had the older generation, we had the new young people. I remember drafting that thing in the middle of the night in the Chicago YMCA on Wabash Avenue. Something was going to happen here. And then, in a couple of years, it all got politicized to the right. Uh, and and for years, people thought the only Christian voice was the religious right. When I'm on the BBC now in the UK, they're amazed to hear an American Christian voice who doesn't think God is an American, right. <laughs> who only who only is a Republican who only cares about gay marriage and abortion, but now um, I think part of it was there was a tremendous kind of well back to Romans twelve a middle class conformity in the evangelical world a very kind of suburban captivity of the churches uh, one scholar put it. And that was rife to be infiltrated by a conservative political movement. And so they did, hijacking is the right word, Krista. They hijacked I'm going to let you faith. use that word and I can't use yeah, that Yeah, they hijacked word. it. Mm-hmm. But God's politics, my last book, was just saying, hey, when someone steals your faith, you got to take it back. But now millions of people have taken it back, particularly a new generation. So what happened is now an, the generation that's my age are now the presence of all the Christian colleges and they're, uh, they're, you know, they're, they're kind of in the institutions. And they, by and large, have gone through Vietnam. They've gone through the civil rights movement. They've gone through Watergate. And, 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 and they, they have a different kind of social consciousness. And the new generation, like Shane and so many others, uh, every week I'm talking to 14-year-olds about their faith. I, I, I see street kids you know, everywhere I go, you know, on airports and uh, bus ho- ho- hotels, and they're saying, we want, you know, we want a different kind of faith to change the world. They want to change the world. So I think that's what I mean when I say we're at the beginning of what I think could be a new great awakening. Mm-hmm. I think we're at the edge of what could be a revival of faith that's, I'm known more as a social activist, as you as you know, but I'm saying right now, that, you know, we won't get to social justice without a revival of faith. 
You know, the right. issues are too big, right. too big to be left to just education or or, or good organizing and or see, the I, right program. And I think that's a point you're making that in your circles or in certain circles is new mm-hmm. because you talked about the fourth awakening, religious awakening, great awakening, mm-hmm. as the civil rights movement in the 1960s, which had an incredible religious base. I mean, Martin Luther King Absolutely. Jr. was a preacher and a Absolutely. theologian first mm-hmm. and foremost, but that got right. lost as even as... As even, um, you know, as I don't want to, the word liberals is so loaded, but as even people um, who who carried that tradition forward, you know, the great people who cared about that kind of social program and social justice mm-hmm. detached it from, exactly. from yeah. that religious base uh, or inspiration or grounding. Mm-hmm. Um, so... You know, it's easy to criticize the religious right, and I, I just think also that's evolving so rapidly, which is fascinating. Um, but what went wrong on the left um, that you know that that also played into what led to the religious right? And, and well, it, uh, the subtitle of my last book was "Why the Right Gets It Wrong, the Left Doesn't Get, yeah. doesn't get It." Yeah, it was both. You're right. The left became very secular. Now, I want to say, religion has no monopoly on morality. I want to say that every time I speak, I say something mm-hmm. like that. Some of my deepest, dearest friendships are people who aren't religious uh, and very moral people. But the left got very kind of, they became like secular fundamentalists, you know, disdaining religion, religious people, people of faith. Uh, and, and, and it really created a situation where the right seemed to own God. God was a Republican, obviously. And the left and the Democrats were hostile to faith and secular and, and, and you know, the polls about church-going people vote Republican and all the rest. Well, now we see what Time Magazine is calling a leveling of the praying field. <laughs> nice phrase. Uh-huh. And their cover story a couple of weeks back, now you happen, happen to have three Democrats uh, running for president who happen to be strong and authentic people of faith. And we had we hosted all three of them on our CNN forum. Yes. The Republican side, you know, has some serious problems with, with uh, they, they got a God problem over there, they got a marriage problem over there, they got some serious issues. And there isn't a candidate who exemplifies this sort of, uh, you know, conservative religious uh, movement anymore. So I think that's good because God isn't a Republican or a Democrat, and faith shouldn't be in any party's political pocket. Mm -hmm. We should be the ultimate swing vote, if you would, holding both sides accountable. So the changing agenda on the ground among evangelicals, Catholics, mainline folks, the whole Jewish renewal that's going on, I'm excited about. And I'm talking to a lot of you, you are too, young Muslims, young Muslim women who have a very different vision of their faith than Osama bin Laden does. So something prophetic Religion is growing again around the country, and I think it's going to change the whole political landscape. And I, I just don't think that apart from the, these big issues, we've got to move global poverty and climate change. Politics is failing to solve the big issues. When that happens, social movements rise up to change politics, and the best social movements always have spiritual foundations. That's what revival is. That's a pretty and big that's claim. Gonna, that's a pretty yeah, big claim. I think that's – they're like mountains. I mean, they're like big mountains, 3 billion people living on $2 a day, 30,000 kids dying today, climate change, Al Gore's uh, uh, you know, evangelistic stump speeches. I mean, you say, how do we – these are too big for us. The, the odds are against us. How do we change that? 
Well, the Bible says you've got faith the size of a grain of a mustard seed. You can move mountains, and we've got some mountains to move. And I think anything short of revival of faith isn't going to be enough. So, you know, there were cries of theocracy or impending theocracy with the influence of um, conservative evangelical Christians in Mm -hmm. the Bush White House. And some people say that what you're talking about, um, uh, while it's coming from a different direction, is is also um, playing with the separation of church and state. Um, crossing lines that seemed to have been drawn more firmly 10 years ago? It's a fair question, and I like to always answer because, you know, Martin Luther King Jr. had, had his Bible in his one, in one hand mm-hmm. and Constitution in the other hand. And, and, and I, he never endorsed a candidate, and I never have either. He made them endorse his agenda. And while he navigated the courts of power, his base was outside of them in a movement. That's where the religious right is very different than the civil rights movement. They became part of the block. They were part of the party power block in the Republican Party. Mm -hmm. King always kept his distance, critical distance. Uh, Desmond Tutu in South Africa, after the ANC, the movement for liberation, won and they were the government, he'd supported them, but he stepped back and became a prophetic voice to the, the new government. Uh, so I think it's very important that we affirm the separation of church and state. That doesn't mean the segregation of moral values from public life, and your mm-hmm. show is a good example of why it's important not to do that. Mm-hmm. But also it doesn't banish religious language from the public square as long as we are respectful of diversity and pluralism and democracy. Martin Luther once said, uh, I'd rather be ruled by an incompetent Turk than no, no, by a competent Turk than an incompetent Christian, <laughs> and I like that. Right, and I think I think many people hoped that what would happen is that the religious right that that kind of political influence would simply die. But as you suggest, what's happening instead that is another kind of antidote to the theocracy cry is that everyone yeah. is talking about this now, right? Well, I, I think the answer to bad religion isn't secularism, okay. but it's better, it's better religion. Okay. Uh, where would we be without the religion of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. or Dorothy Day or Desmond Tutu? So religion, let's be honest, some of the worst things we've done to each other as human beings in this world have been done in the name of God, the name of religion. Uh, and yet... It's also what's catalyzed and mobilized and fired, inspired hearts and imaginations and lives to work for social justice and social change. So it's it's always the slave and the slave owners gave their slaves that book, the Bible, to turn their eyes toward toward heaven, take their eyes off their plight on the earth. But in the book, the slaves found Moses and Jesus, who became the foundation for their liberation struggle. It's always paradoxical in that sense. Mm-hmm. I do think of you, I don't know what you think of this analogy, as um, it's kind of a, a Billy Graham figure, a new generation, different kind of uh, person and Christian, but um, kind of a pastor to powerful people. Is, is well, we're about to begin what we're calling justice revivals around the country. 
little we're going to just go to city by city by city and it's trying to put together the traditions of Billy Graham on the one hand and Martin Luther King Jr. on the other hand mm-hmm. preaching at night in the convention centers and marching in the streets during the day. Those two traditions are powerful in my life. I grew up with Billy Graham. I mean, every night when there was a crusade, our family watched it, you know? Right. And, 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 and then Martin King had such a powerful influence as I became a teenager. And Billy Graham was always very warm to me, always, always welcoming the new generation, mm-hmm. uh, agreeing with so much of what we were saying. Uh, he said, the world would be surprised how much I agree with what you're trying to do and say. And, and I, that tradition is powerful in me, but it's the Finney, it's the, the ones who linked faith to social justice very directly that really fire my heart. So, so I think we want to build movements outside of the quarters of power, but then you want to be able to speak to them. But frankly, um, uh, it's not kind of a, uh, you know, right now I've, uh, there's these open doors. That Gordon Brown, the new prime minister of Great Britain, has been a friend for 10 years. We've been having breakfast and talking for 10 years. Kevin Rudd's about to become the prime minister in Australia, I think. Catholic, very committed, Hmm. uh, very smart guy, five languages he speaks. We've been having dinner and talking. I am friends with some of the ones running for president here. I think we're going to have some open doors in some of the key capitals of the world. But I'll tell you what, uh, unless there are movements pushing against the open doors, we're not going to change the big issues. Whoever... Whoever my favorite candidate is running for president of the United States, and I won't tell you, but whoever that is, if, if they win, they won't be able to change the big issues unless it's a movement pushing them from the outside. Gordon Brown knows that in Britain. He, he invites that kind of pushing mm-hmm. uh, uh, from, from, from our movement on the outside. So I think we may see some open doors in places where we've had closed doors but more important than ever will be this movement uh, pressing from the outside for change. And when you say open doors, open to what? Well, Gordon Brown once once said over breakfast one day, he said, uh, uh, you know, for the first time in his history, we have the knowledge and technology and information and resources to end extreme poverty as we know it. What we don't have, he said, is the moral and the political will. He looks across a table at 11 Downing Street, and he says, that's your job in the churches. And that's who was, your job. is that when he met with, was it you, or was this you and a group of um, other evangelical well, leaders? Well, the first time he said that was to me over breakfast, just two of us, mm-hmm. but then he said that to, I brought a bunch of leaders back for the G8 in Britain, and he said a similar thing to all of them, and he called them to, to be kind of the... Martin Luther King Jr. said that the role of religion is to be the conscience of the state. And, and, and I think um, Brown, I think, is the head of state around the world right now, the one who has the deepest passion for an issue like global poverty. He has it deep in his soul. Mm-hmm. I've seen that over 10 years. Uh, and I think we're going to have a new generation of leaders now. I was just in Singapore, as I said, and the global south is rising up around the world, and there's some new leaders there too yeah. uh, in the poorest countries, new powerful political leaders. And what I'm saying is that social movements will be necessary to make real progress on the big issues. And historically, those have generally had spiritual foundations. 
Okay. And, you know, I think you and I, I think I may have met you the first time. We were both attending a conference and uh, it was in the wake of Hurricane Katrina. I think it was a couple Mm -hmm. of months after that. Mm-hmm. I had a sense in those weeks and months after Hurricane Katrina, and I a sensed, I believe you, you spoke about this as well, that it had really woken people up in this country, that it had opened eyes, that you know, it had been stunning and it was no longer possible to ignore poverty in that great American city and others, racial isolation in that great city and others. And I have to tell you that... I, I, I don't know where that momentum went. Maybe I don't know where to look. Um, I, I mm-hmm. don't feel like that's been picked up on. I felt like that was a moment when, when movement might have begun and, and reached farther. So, I mean, tell me it, it, how you experienced that. Are, are there things you're seeing out there that I'm not? I think you're right about Katrina, where we saw the people who were left behind. Mm-hmm had already been left out in American society. Uh, The tsunami revealed that, too. While there were a lot of tourists killed on beaches, a lot of the people who died were were those living in the most vulnerable places. So natural disasters often reveal the great disaster of the way the world is structured, the unjust structures And climate change looks like it's unrolling in that way as well. Well, climate change Mm -hmm. will be caused by the world's wealthiest people. Mm -hmm. Its first victims will be the world's poorest people, the same thing. So I think there was a moment, a teachable moment, when a new kind of leadership in this country could could have really called us together to make sure that those members of our family who've been left out were welcomed back into the family that were given a seat at the table, and that didn't happen. I think 9-11 was another teachable moment. There were lessons there about mm-hmm. how we could join the world in its vulnerability. Right. Our vulnerability, right. had our invulnerability had been shattered. Uh, we could have joined the rest of the world. We didn't have the leadership to call us to our, bet, our best selves at that moment. But I still think the teachable lesson from Katrina and even 9-11, is still there. It's around the... I see it all the time on the road. Uh, I think you were on the road for God's Politics. When did when was that published? <laughs> had you been... Were you out on your book tour after Katrina? Is that right? It, I'd, I'd been out for about a year. Uh, God's oh. Politics had, had been the... just a, Well, it had been uh, the January book before. So okay. I'd already been a, been in the road, but this the book tour lasted about three years. It just right. kept... Like a roller coaster, kept, kept going. But I, I still find on the road still... We were in Dallas last month, a thousand people in Dallas talking about this stuff. Uh, and I do think that uh, the new altar call for the new revival is going to be like the slogan in the movement in Britain a few years ago called Make Poverty History. Poverty and human trafficking and, 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 and HIV as an issue that reveals the, you know, the, the poverty. They're not trafficking middle-class girls in the Philippines. They're trafficking the young, poor Mm -hmm. kids from the poorest parts of the country. So I think poverty is going to be the the cry. The the, the, the inequality of the world is really going to be at the heart of this revival. But do we know know how to eradicate poverty? Um, Well, I, you know, what I've been saying is let's, let's have a serious debate, a serious conversation. Um, this new book I've been writing talks about how we need the best of the conservative ideas 
and the best of the liberal ideas. I want to see conservatives, uh, I want to see liberals talk about um, uh, uh, family breakdown right. and out-of-wedlock birth uh, and, and, and addictions as, as, as priorities in overcoming poverty. I want to see conservatives talk about strategic investments in health care and education and affordable housing. That'd be a grand alliance that we could we could bridge this this liberal conservative debate. We have these three obstacles. One is is the poor have not been a priority. Mm-hmm. Two is we have a debate about strategy. And three is the real one. Um, we don't know poor people. Liberals or conservatives don't really know. Because we poor people live in neighborhoods friends. with people who have houses the same size as ours, right? Poor people are utterly segregated. Uh-huh. They don't live all over the country. They live only in certain places. And, and you know, until poor people are our friends, not just the objects of our concern on the liberal side or the people who are to blame for their own misfortunes on the conservative side, uh, something about relationship changes your perspective. Mm-hmm. You know, when, when, when I, we, we had a, in D.C., we had a family welfare family, you might say, uh, you know, move in with us. We're tutoring the kids and we're trying to evict the family and we stand up with the mom at the court and get the eviction notice overturned. But then the rats took over the place. I went in with baseball bats and boots to go after the rats. And one day the rat was got in the bed with Isaac, the little baby. And uh, he was snatched out by Teresa, the old, oldest girl in time. And, and they said, we can't stay here. So they moved in with us. And so, you know, six of us and and uh, 14 of them in a house with uh, <laughs> one bathroom for a year. And and I learned a lot more, a whole lot more about inner city family life and the dynamics in that than I ever had in all my sociology courses. Uh, it's what happened to Bono when he went to the camps in Ethiopia. And, you know, this guy hands him his son and, you know, a rock star is used to photo ops. He takes a picture and tries to hand the the baby back and the man says, no, please take him with you, because if he stays here, he'll die. And and it was a, you know, it was a moment for Bono. He says now he takes that boy with him wherever he goes, in his heart, in mm-hmm. his spirit, because, you know, you get relationship, lack of relationship to poor people. It leads to our blaming and our misunderstanding and our faults, our polarization. How can anybody say that, that out-of-wedlock birth and family breakdown and, and addictions are not a causal fact of poverty. Mm-hmm. How can anyone say that not affording health care and having no affordable housing to li- and having education that doesn't educate aren't causes of poverty? Let's stop this stupid debate and look at what's right, what's right and what works. Let's find solutions and not sound bites. And I think the country is ready for that kind of leadership. So, you know, I was going to ask you whether... Whether taking poverty as a as an absolutely pivotal issue, you know, is just another way of put it in religious terms of creating setting up an idol um, uh, and uh, and and skewing everything else around it in the same way that five years ago maybe you could say that abortion and gay rights had become that center around which everything was skewed in the moral values debate. But I I think what I hear you saying is that poverty, in fact, brings together. Um, both the issues of family life, right, and addiction um, right. that mm-hmm. 
are and sanctity of life that are important to conservative Christians and also the issues of policy and the, the social justice issues that uh, that maybe uh, liberals traditionally would define as their moral values issues. Is that? Yeah. If I was going around the Christian college campuses and saying, I want to convert you to uh, to more liber- liberal spending and bad housing policies, <laughs> it wouldn't be very successful. Uh, what we're talking about is this wonderful parable in, in you know, you know, in Matthew, when Jesus says, the banquet table, the welcome table, go out and find the people who aren't normally invited. Some people have just not been invited to our table. And it's not just a matter of poverty. It's a matter of, of who's in the family and, and who's important and who's not and who's part of the community. And and, and I, I think, you know, um, the biblical notion is that the truth about a society is much better known from the bottom of that society than from the top. And in seminary, way back, we were talking a few moments about seminary, Mm -hmm. we did this experiment way back a long time ago. As young seminarians, we found every passage in the Bible about poor people, about wealth and poverty, oppression, all that, And and we found several thousand verses. It was the second most prominent theme in the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament, and in the New Testament, it, the, the the Synoptic Gospels, one of the first three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, one of every 16 verses. Hmm. In Luke was one of every seven verses. I didn't name my son after Luke Skywalker. <laughs> right. and, and, and we took the yeah. Bible and we took a pair of scissors and we cut out of the Bible every single reference to poor people. And when we were done, that Bible was in shreds. It was full of holes falling apart in my hands. I'd take it out to preach. I'd say, brothers and sisters, this is the American Bible. It's just full of holes. I still have that old Bible now full of holes, ripped to shreds. What's happening now, Krista, is our Bibles are being put back together again by a new generation. This isn't about politics or liberal or conservative. This is about the integrity of the Word of God. God says there's some people that Matthew 25 that got me into this thing. There's some people that you're leaving out, you're leaving them behind. And, you know, I'm going to, the way I'll know how much you love me, says Jesus, by how you treat them. There's nothing as basic as this, uh, how we treat the other, uh, the vulnerable, the poor, the enemy, the one who's not at the table is the one we're going to be judged by. And, you know, I just want to push this a little bit more. I mean, I think and talk about this a lot right now. It's very hard. I, I think you telling a story about about moving a family in with your family because they were going to be evicted is more helpful than Bono, <clears throat> you know, being handed an Ethiopian child. A story like that leads people to just throw up their hands in despair. You know, how can I possibly, with my little life, with my resources, um, affect that? And and mm-hmm. I and I think also, <clears throat> and you know, Sojourners has been a, a pretty traditional social action urban organization. Um, I, I think, you know, you said before we're seeing, we've seen the limits of politics, and I think we've also seen, you know, the limits of, of, of tactics. Um, mm-hmm. And so, you know, do you see new ways to really help people not just care about these issues? Because I think people right. do care, but often they care and they just are, you know, overwhelmed by the idea that there's oh, nothing they can right. do about it. So what do you see? Or maybe you maybe you would talk about people you know about or projects where, where those connections are being made in new and fresh ways. Well, you know, uh, 
you work on these issues, and we've, we've done all of it. We've done the food co-ops and the tutoring, and we've done the housing co-ops. We, we, we've run homeless shelters, all the stuff that yeah. you talked about with Shane And that, no, no, that's all good. It's, yeah. it's all good. Yeah. It's all good. And it changes us to start with. It changes our yeah, lives. Right. But finally, you can't keep pulling bodies out of the river and not send somebody upstream to see what or who is throwing them in. You know, you right. know, you know, you know uh, the, the Salvation Army founders, Catherine William Booth, radical evangelicals in their day, they said you can't keep picking up bodies at the bottom of the of, of the mountain, not climb the hill and see who's pushing them off the edge. Now, I think the line is not from service to just politics. The line's got to be from service to movement. What changes things? always are the movements. It was the Wilberforces and the the Newtons. What happened was you saw that movie this year, Amazing Grace, about William Wilberforce. Mm -hmm. Very dynamic, charismatic parliamentarian. What it didn't show was the prairie fire movement all through the UK uh, of ordinary people who wouldn't put sugar in their tea because the plantations were making sugar made by slaves, harvested by slaves, and and the slave movements themselves, the rebellions in Jamaica, movements are what change politics. What I, in D.C., you know, I often talk to people going to lobby on the Hill about this or that, and I say, here's how you recognize a member of Congress. They're the ones walking around with their fingers up in the air, and then they lick their finger, and they put it back up, and they see which way the wind is blowing. You can't change a nation by replacing one wet-fingered politician with another. You change a nation when you change the wind. You change the way the wind is blowing. It's amazing how quickly they respond. And so you look at Selma, Alabama, and how that led to a Voting Rights Act five months later. Johnson had told King uh, just before Selma, it'll take five years to get a Voting Rights Act. King said, I can't wait five years. Mm -hmm. He organized Selma. And we've got to now be wind changers, not lobbyists, but wind changers. How do we, by our service, by our doing it in our lives, how do we then join together and knit together a movement that holds politics accountable? Um, But only movements can do that. Individual families can't do it by themselves or churches by themselves. So I think you're on record as saying that you don't advise politicians, but I, I know that you are an influential um, advisor to uh, politicians on, on both sides of the aisle. But, um, you know, as you said, you were able to organize um, CNN to bring the, the three mm-hmm. leading uh, Democratic presidential candidates to talk about faith, which was you know, just a groundbreaking event uh, moment. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you were imagining, you know, what would your dream of the 2008 version of Selma B. You know, what? <laughs> well, I don't, I don't endorse politicians. I'm happy to advise them. Right, <laughs> right, right. Lots right. of advice. Free, so free let's advice. say you, you became uh, an advisor to the next president and you could say, you know, this is what we have to make happen in five months. You know? Well, one thing we're actually working on is um, for a long time, I was focusing on trying to put poverty on the agenda for this election in a way it hadn't been before. And and we're making some progress there. Sure enough, in the last two months, you've had debates uh, between John Edwards and Barack Obama about whether you whether the best thing to do is to disperse poverty and poor people in, in, into the community uh, or whether to try to fix it where it lies, like the Harlem Children's you know, Zone, you know, Jeff Canada, 
in uh, in New York, and Barack took one position, Edwards took the other, and uh, the Clinton campaign told me she's going to be out with her plan for poverty soon. So we may have a debate in this election about what is the best way to reduce poverty at home and, and to eliminate extreme poverty around the world. Now we're thinking that we want to look beyond the election, because what if we're successful and somebody wins who really has a serious commitment right. on the issue of poverty. We got a campaign we're going to do called Vote Out Poverty. We're going to bird dog campaigns and candidates at every level and say, what's your plan? You know, what's, let's have a debate because it's not easy. It's let's have a serious conversation about how to be successful. We're now thinking about having something six months after the election, maybe at our annual Pentecost mobilization, where we invite the new president, whoever he or she is, to come and announce their bold plan for serious poverty reduction that will involve all of us uh, in the context of the faith community, gathered at a Pentecost gathering in D.C. In New Zealand a few years ago, the Maori people and the Anglicans did something like this, had a huge gathering in Auckland, and they had a bleachers set up with the name of every legislator, every parliamentarian was on a seat. <laughs> and if they weren't there, the camera showed who wasn't there. So how do you build movements that help help the good politicians do the right thing and help the ones who, who haven't figured out they want to do the right thing, that maybe if they want to be elected, they ought to do the right thing. How do you build the momentum outside of those corridors to change what's happening on the inside? That's what wind changing means. So I think it's going to be these justice revivals. I'd like to go to cities where there's been, let's say, like Birmingham, Alabama, there was a campaign going on there for a long time. Fred Shuttlesworth finally said to King, come on in, we're ready now for a national focus on Birmingham. And so there are movements happening all over the country in cities that I'm close to, good things being done that need some some boost, some push, some national attention. Right. So I, I want to see local campaigns succeed. I want to see national efforts. This nation, for example, is not very far away from from the the, the people saying, do something about health care. I mean, right. some polls show that people will even spend more taxes of their money to find health care solutions. And so, so again, so when you think, is health care part of the idea of poverty? It's, sure, it's a, it's absolutely. It's included in that. Now, so I think yep. there has been some wisdom, some political wisdom mm-hmm. in recent years that you can't mobilize Americans around an issue like poverty the way you can mobilize them around issues of self-interest or personal interest. I mean, do you think that's true? Well, you know, I I have, you know, I'm on campuses all the time and I'm, uh, teaching again this fall back at Harvard again, and, and you know students I meet at Harvard or wherever, they're they're volunteering in record numbers uh, beyond what is necessary for a balanced resume, <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah. and, and and they're putting themselves some in very daunting, challenging, even dangerous situations around the world. When I ask them why, I always hear back two words: we're looking for meaning, and we're looking for connection. Uh, shopping doesn't satisfy the deepest longings of the human heart. <laughs> and our best and brightest are looking for ways that they can, that, that something beyond themselves uh, calls the best from themselves. And I think it's 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 our need to connect with with those that we've left out and left behind. It's for the sake of our healing. Isaiah, I love the Isaiah text where it says, 
that your healing, Isaiah 58, your healing is tied up in your response to those who have been left out and left behind. And Isaiah's vision is not that some are doing something for the others. It's that we all get healed. This nation needs to be healed of our divisions, our our deep inequalities, our our we don't know each other and we're and we're diminished by that. So I think it is something that that at a deeper sense is in our best interest, finally to affirm the common good. Mm-hmm. The common good, which is a very biblical notion, uh is is in our own best interest. I want my kids to be raised in a in a country that values the common good and not just uh, the survival of the fittest. You know, people I know who've known you a long time say that you have been really dramatically changed by becoming a father <laughs> relatively late in life. Right? Mm-hmm. Is that true? Oh, it's the best thing about my life. I, I mean, I, it's the thing I enjoy the most. I'm a little league baseball coach. I, 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 I now gear my, I, I actually organize my speaking schedule around little league baseball, mm-hmm. uh, and the family time is the is the sacred time, and I, and so many things that I that I thought I knew I I didn't know. Um, I've been around kids my whole life, and I've been godfathers and uncles, but you know something about you know. Uh, having having the experience of of you know knowing you would just um you would just give anything at any moment you'd give your life for that for that little little boy uh little kid um uh it's made me more human that's uh i guess you know it's made me a lot funnier (laughs) (laughs) it's made me a lot more graceful uh you know i get great stories from my from my kids, um, uh, <laughs> you get lots you know. of sermon anecdotes. From oh well, just two days ago, <laughs> yeah, 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 uh, okay. Sunday, I took all these kids to the to the baseball stadium for my boys, Luke's birthday, and twenty six fourth graders, and and uh, and you know, every time I've gone to a baseball game, my whole life, I used to take my glove, my mitt, you know, hmm. to be ready for a ball, you know, hit to me in the stands. I never got a ball all those years as a baseball player. Well, Luke takes his glove, and sure enough, we're in the stands, and we're in the first row on the left side. It's a minor league stadium, the Cal Ripken's Ironbird Stadium, and the ball rips down the sideline and hits the wall right in front of us and careens to the outfield. And they go, kids go, oh, no. And so Luke gets up and runs to the wall, and this big outfielder is going to throw it back, and he says, throw the ball to me. Hmm. And and the outfielder throws the ball uh, across the, the the field, and here's this this little league kid with his glove in the air, and he reaches and just grabs the ball, and the fans went wild. <laughs> and Luke sits there next to me, beaming, and he says, "He says, Dad, I'm so excited. I'm just I'm just tingling. I'm just tingling." And so to my staff, yesterday we had our opening chapel. I said, "You know, it feels like." You know, we we've been in the stadium with our gloves on for a long time. Right. Uh, you know, ready to catch a ball, and now you know now they're they're starting to throw us the ball. <laughs> so let's be ready to catch it. You know. So and 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 one of my longtime friends says, Jim, maybe it's just a story. Maybe there's no lessons at all in the story. <laughs> but but I, I get all these lessons right. from my kids. You yeah. know, I I just learned stuff from them and and they view you know luke asked me but one day what global warming was and i tried to explain to him as an eight-year-old and he listens carefully 
At the end, he says, so I'm guessing Hummers are a problem. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So... It's a, it's a grassroots conversation that for me is is the best the the the, the best one that I have. You know, I, I could go on. Yeah, <laughs> I did. Um, I did find a. I did read an article that was written a, a profile of you from 1994, which you know really is not that long ago. But the world has changed so much since 1994. Right. Um, so this reporter is with you in 1994. He's in Washington. It's the L.A. Times. Do you remember the article I'm talking about? He's, oh, he's yeah, with yeah. you, and you find out that Sojourners is in yet another financial crisis. The magazine might have mm-hmm. to miss an issue. There might be payless paydays. You might get evicted. Yeah. Um, and I read that, and I and I really, I did, you know, the story you just told about they're th- throwing the balls to us now. I mean, you really are in a very different place. You're at Davos every year. Um, you're speaking all over the world. You're consulted by world leaders and um and presidential candidates and i you know i I, I do want to ask you the hard question on that too you know what Mm -hmm. what gets compromised um or what do you worry about getting compromised how do you change as you become more conventionally influential what are the Mm -hmm. that's a fair question (laughs) the the you know washington dc is a place where uh access is its own end. Um, mm-hmm. This is a town where having access is what everybody wants. Getting your calls returned, getting your call through, uh, who you've just been with and just talked to. Nobody ever asks, what is the access for? What's the reason? What's the purpose of all this? You mentioned the CNN thing. I remember when it finally that happened. That was the de- presidential debate with the, yeah. with the leading Democratic candidates yeah. in faith. But mm-hmm. CNN finally agreed, uh, I'll just say it wasn't easy, but they agreed to actually co-host something with you know, an organization from the religious community and let religious leaders ask questions. And, and, and so there was a lot of politics involved in this. And finally, I remember the day, the, the day when it looked like it was going to happen. And I was w- with our political group talking about this. And they're all excited. I mean, you know, it's like, uh, you know, CNN's going to do this with us. And and I said, you know, 30,000 children died again today because of lack of clean drinking water, um, diseases none of our kids die of, and no food in their bellies. And they will tomorrow and the next day. And our having the success with CNN hasn't changed that yet. And so all that's happened now is there's a more influential religious organization in Washington, D.C. that CNN's got to deal with. Until what we're doing changes the big things, the really big things, then we really haven't accomplished much. If we could just, you know, uh, mobilize all of our resources, all our constituencies, uh, it wouldn't be enough yet. Unless, Unless God does something new through us, unless our loaves and fishes, if you will, that we put on the table, are multiplied. Um, until that happens, then, then you know, we should be very careful about thinking that we're so successful. And so I think finally it's going to take not just being on Jon Stewart and access to CNN and having uh, best-selling books. It's going to take a movement a real movement of faith of ordinary people who decide their faith is supposed to change the world. It's happened before. 
people of faith have done this before, and I think we can do it again by the grace of God. I think um, a great line, which was the first line of one of your books, and I think I've seen you saying that it was your best line. It really is excellent. Hope is believing in spite of the evidence, then watching the evidence change. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What were you thinking yeah. of when you wrote that? And how do you, have you lived into that sentence? The big choice, I think, when I was growing up, your background, you would understand this, the big choice was, was between belief and secularism. You know? Right. Uh, it was like there's this monster called secular humanism. It's going to eat your children. You right. know? That was the big choice. I don't think that's the big choice. There is a big choice, though. The big choice today for us is the one between hope and cynicism. I like the cynics. I mean, they see the world realistically. No rose-colored glasses. Cynics generally are against all the bad stuff. And maybe for a while they tried to change the bad stuff, and it didn't change, and they got disillusioned and tired and discouraged and maybe got out there and felt a little vulnerable. So they withdraw to a place called cynicism where... You can still be against all the bad stuff, but you don't think it'll ever really change. And you can surround yourself with a bit more security. Cynicism becomes a buffer against commitment. Hope, on the other hand, is not a feeling or a personality type. It's a decision, a choice you make because of this thing we call faith. Faith is the substance, as Hebrews of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. And my paraphrase of that is hope means believing in spite of the evidence and then watching the evidence change. Wherever change has come, it's because some people believed in that possibility before it came to be. And so it's our belief, it's the hope as a decision that makes change possible. And I think that choice for hope is the most important contribution the faith community has to make to the world, the promise and the power of hope. Things can change. They have and they will. And that's always something that we insist upon because our God finally is bigger than all the things that we think are so big. I think that's probably your last word. I want to ask you one more question, and I I see there are some questions from my producers behind the glass, so I'm going to be quiet for a minute while I listen to them. Okay. Um, Yeah, let me, yeah, let me just... um, the and and what you just described um would have had a different resonance and would have been heard by a more um homogeneous america right in the, in 50 years ago even 20 years ago so in 21st century america you know you're an evangelical christian but you know what talking about faith in our culture is so much bigger and more varied than t- than talking about Christianity. You know, mm-hmm. how how does mm-hmm. that change like how you you know, how this gets organized, what that movement looks like and how it's going to be different from the say the civil rights movement in the 1960s. Mm-hmm. Well, there are more Muslims in America than Presbyterians now. Yeah. Don't yeah. tell the Presbyterians, but that's yeah. true. <laughs> uh and so I know in, in my uh 
my classes are on the road, I, I'm meeting this kind of new generation of Muslims, particularly the women, are, are very impressive to, to me. There's a lot of Jewish revival and renewal going on. I'm, I'm in synagogues a lot uh, these days. Uh, and the whole new group, I call them a new denomination, the spiritual but not religious. <laughs> okay. You know, Ben, you know, ben Cohen, Ben and Jerry's ice cream, tells me he's spiritual but not religious. I said, Ben, give them all free ice cream. You could be the bishop. You know? <laughs> so he, he, he's thinking about that. But, but I find a whole lot of folks coming out to our events on the edges who aren't particularly even religious, and they're kind of listening, and they're paying attention, and they're, uh, you know, the, I remember us in, in, in Memphis, and the woman who planned it said, you know, something happened last night. My son came. He's 16. He's never come to anything before that's religious. He said, Mom, I want to come. But he stood in the foyer, never sat in the big cathedral. He just stood in the foyer and listened the whole time. And he said, Mom, I want to be a part of this. A lot of people are standing in the foyer. They can't quite sit down yet, but they're in the foyer or they're outside listening through the windows. We've got to create open spaces and and places. I mean, Jesus did this. I mean, there was all kind of people there who weren't sure about this. They weren't believers. Even his disciples got things screwed up most of the time. But they were always kind of in and this conversation. And you don't want hope to be restricted to believers, I Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And, and, but there is a prophetic, as you know well, Chris, there's a prophetic religious tradition in Christianity, in Judaism, in Islam. There's also fundamentalism in all of our great traditions. The big battle is between the prophetic uh, traditions in all of the great uh, faith communities and the fundamentalists. So I think there's going to be an alliance, if you will, mm. between the prophetic elements and impulses and movements and people in all the you probably talked to me with people like Reza Aslan, who wrote the book No right. God But God. You know, Reza and I always end up on panels together. We met on Meet the Press one day. <laughs> I, love, I love him. He's just this bright young star in, in, uh, in sort of the, the Muslim conversation. And so I'm looking for allies and friends and kindred spirits. And the revival I'm talking about does not lead to sectarian religious warfare, but interfaith collaboration to focus on the biggest challenges we face today, including people who aren't religious at all, but but have a moral sensibility. I love it when people say after after a talk, I'm secular, I'm I'm agnostic, I'm even an atheist, but I didn't feel kicked to the curb tonight. I feel like you're saying we need a moral discourse on politics, something we all need and we're all needed for. Hmm. Okay. Here's my final question. We we began um, early on in this conversation, you and I talked about how evan- evangelical Christianity has evolved over the last 40, 50 years, and particularly in the last few years. And I, I wonder, I still think there are lots of stereotypes in media about who evangelicals sure. are. And, you know, something I always point out is you know, if, you, if you're talking 40 percent of the United States population, you're talking a very diverse group of people. Hmm. Um, how would you tell the story of what's happening, how that evolution of American evangelicalism that started anew in the 21st century, how that is continuing to develop on, right now? You know, um, sometimes I say the religious right has been replaced by Jesus. <laughs> mm-hmm. And and I think that's true. I, I think there's something so compelling about the figure of Jesus. You go to any street corner and ask anybody there whether they're believers or not, what they think of 
Jesus, they'll say, well, you know, he hung out with poor people and prostitutes and sinners, and and he was compassionate and loving, and he was for peace. You always get that. Then you ask what they think of Christians. You get a whole different set of adjectives. Throw an evangelical. Mm -hmm. It gets pretty nasty Mm -hmm. what you hear. And yet there's a kind of a coming, uh, there's this, this new order called the kingdom of God, meant to change everything, and this is this is the gospel of Jesus, not the gospel about Jesus, but the gospel of Jesus. That's drawing people uh, from so many places. So I see evangelicals, a new generation, and they're just being drawn to this radical vision of Jesus and the kingdom. I see Catholic social teaching coming alive again. I see mainline churches. But I just did a conference for the Presbyterians first in many decades on evangelism. That's what they want, mm-hmm. evangelism, right. <laughs> not social action. Yeah. And Luke 4 was our text, uh, Jesus' opening statement. Uh, but, but, I'm, but I'm particularly seeing an immigrant church. I'm seeing, I'm seeing African Americans, a new generation of black Christians who want to, uh, you know, who, who aren't content with singing the praises of the civil rights movement. They want to make their own history for justice. Latina, Latino Christians, I meet them all the time, young Hispanics, uh, Asian American Christians who don't want the assimilationist ethic of their parents. They want to change their neighborhoods. They're creating, I think, what I'd call a post-white church in America. We're all becoming part of a post-white church where we're beginning to look like uh, the church of the global south. That's where Christianity is growing in the global south. It's evangelical, Pentecostal, Catholic, but it's 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 a rainbow of colors, mm-hmm. and it's deeply personal, but it's being applied to changing the facts of HIV or climate change or poverty. So I think you know something new is happening, and I think a particular narrow American view. Going back to our first name of the magazine, Post American, that's happening now. <laughs> uh, you, you, know, you know, when I said to the World Vision people, we must be Christians first, and Americans or our tribes, our tribes got to come second or third or fourth. And that there was deep response to that among people mm-hmm. around the world. Globalization has an inevitable logic, has no comparable ethic, and so perhaps international communities of faith could help supply the ethics for globalization, the rules of a global neighborhood that come from the prophetic tradition that's embedded in all of our great religious faith communities. Okay, well, I've taken a lot of your time. This has been great. It's been fun. It's been really great. Um, I think we're working a little ahead of ourselves. We'll probably air this in October. and you will know the great thing that we can do is, you know, we'll be able to put the whole conversation up on the website. And it's amazing oh, how many people will listen to an hour and I'll a bet. half of a real conversation with no sound bites. <laughs> and and then we'll, you know, we'll turn it into an hour. We're going to be back on in Washington starting oh, at the end of September. We're going to be on WAMU. Yeah. So wow. when? Yeah. when do you know when? Uh, I think it's the last weekend in September or the 23rd. What time of day, though? 20, oh, we're going to be on 7 o'clock Sunday morning. Before oh, okay. weekend, all things considered. Okay. Um, so that starts end of September. Great. Got a great young rabbi from Los Angeles on this week. I was thinking about your um, your talk about Jew- the Jewish spiritual renaissance. It's really fascinating. Mm-hmm. So anyway, it's great to talk to you, and um, we'll, you'll know when this is going to be on, and uh, 
if there are any questions, I think Colleen's got email addresses okay. and all that. And I hope our paths cross again, too. Let's let, let's make sure that they do. Okay. Uh, let me just say you're doing a great thing here. This is uh, this, you, there's no show like this quite out there, and you're really giving you're legitimizing this conversation. I love the way you do religion, you know, ethics and right. values. You're really you're doing a, a great thing here, well, and I, I just encourage you. For well, it. thank you. And you know, even though you haven't been on the show before, your name has come up many times. <laughs> so well, <I'm>, you've. <laughs> You've been a superior. Yeah, John Stewart, Tim Russert, I finally made the big time here. Finally on Chris Tibbet show. I'm really pleased. Thank you so much. (laughs) That's good. All right. See you later, Tim. Okay. Bye, Bye. Krista. Thanks again. Thank you.